Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. It was too hot. And with the wind blowing and the intense heat, the, the, the wind would turn the hose into spray. They were ineffectual. The thing was just too big, too wide, too hot. I mean, it melted glass. And, and we're talking, you know, temperatures 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit or more. Uh, at certain points, a, a, a body of fire a half a mile wide. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I appreciate, as always, your weekly companionship. It is so great to have with me today Carl Smith. He is Franklin Bliss Snyder, Professor of English and American Studies and Professor of History Emeritus at Northwestern University. He's written extensively about Chicago history and has graciously agreed to join me in honor of the 150th anniversary of one of the most legendary, monumental urban disasters in American history, the Great Chicago Fire. His book is called Chicago's Great Fire, The Destruction and Resurrection of an Iconic American City. Thanks for coming on. Great to have you. Oh, oh, thank, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So what first motivated you to tackle this enormous subject? Well, uh, the 150th anniversary didn't was part of it. Um, but I, I'm a, a scholar of 19th century American urban history, particularly American urban cultural life. And I've been studying Chicago in one way or another for much of my career. Um, And uh, what I'm just very interested in events like this as great stories in themselves, but also in terms of uh, what they tell us about the times and what they tell us about people who lived in the times. My great interest is uh, understanding urban experience through the eyes of the people who experienced uh, this transformation of America from a agricultural country to an, a, an urban nation which took place in the 19th century and no place more with more assertiveness than in Chicago. And the fire hit at a very critical time in that process. So the city of Chicago prior to the fire can you tell us what it was like? Sure. Um, Chicago is very much a creation of the 19th century, the forces that define the 19th century. That is to say, the westward movement, immigration, industrialization, the communications and transportation revolutions, and of course, urbanization. It basically 
didn't exist in in a, in a modern sense and is, as recently as 1830. And by 1871, it was the fourth or fifth largest city in the United States. But part of that, I mean, as obviously as a uh, result of that, it, it had to grow very, very quickly. And that made it both a physically uh, inflammable place. It was very sloppily and hastily built, mostly out of wood and a socially uh, unstable place with all kinds of people from somewhere else, a lot of them from pretty far away. Half of Chicagoans were uh, very close to them at the time of the fire, were born in another country altogether, let alone another far away from Chicago. And if you count them and their children, they make up probably around 75% of the population of the city at that time. So what were Chicago's main industries? What was drawing people there? Well, the, uh, that's a very good question. Chicago at this time, and this is another reason it interests me, was at a critical point. It had tripled in size in the 1860s. It benefited greatly from the Civil War, and the Civil War also accelerated its transformation from mainly a mercantile center, mainly a place where trade was carried on of different types. And basically, Chicago is the key linchpin in the national economy between the agricultural and mining West and the industrial and urban East. But it was now changing into a also a manufacturing city. It made reapers, of course, the famous McCormick reapers. It made rails. It made carriages. It made it was a, a major clothing place for the manufacture of clothing. This is a time when, for the first time, what can we call ready-made clothes are really hitting the uh, larger marketplace. They made a lot of uniforms during the Civil War and also uh, leather and iron goods and things to supply the Union Army. And, of course, in terms of industrial might, the Chicago was a place that turned out beef and lamb and pork, uh, the stockyards, the famous Union stockyards had been established Christmas Day of 1865. So it's this bustling place that is growing at this tremendous pace. So it's a magnet for people who want work, uh, for people who are entrepreneurial and want to maybe make money. And if, even if you don't live there, if you're an investor, a place where you know is growing, you put your money on Chicago. So it's mainly all about growth and change. But this what comes with this is instability. And as the city gets bigger, uh, increasing class and ethnic tensions as well. So we've all likely heard references in our lives to Mrs. O'Leary's cow. <laughs> yes. Uh, blamed for starting Chicago's Great Fire. Would you walk us through your understanding of what happened as best right. as you've been able right. to piece together? The, 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 yes. Um, and it is, as you say, as best I can piece it together. Uh, we'll never know for sure how, at least in my opinion, how the fire started. But I think we were putting our attention in the wrong place, and I can explain why on that. That is to say, fire is a common presence in places like Chicago. In the first two weeks of October alone, there were two dozen fires. It was a, a terribly dry summer and early fall, and, and fires are breaking out everywhere. Some of them we know that people knew the source of, and some they didn't. But this was just a commonplace fire. The real question is, how could such a fire burn so much of a city down? And we can get into that in a minute. And the real reason is gets back to um, what I spoke about before, the way the city was built of 60,000 or so buildings, 40,000 of cheap pine, pine sidewalks, pine fences, uh, an inadequate fire department combined with a uh, this long dry season, and then a major fire the night before. The Chicago fire took place starting on Sunday night, October 8th, 1871, and ran 
till early morning of Tuesday the 10th. But the night of October 7th, Saturday night, there was a major fire and left an already inadequate in terms of size and equipment fire department injured and some of its equipment badly damaged and the men exhausted. So the fire ended in the early afternoon of October 8th and seven or eight hours later, the Great Chicago Fire breaks out this small fire in a barn on the southwest side of the city and the additional factors involved here was a strong wind from the southwest so this blew the fire toward the center of the city where most of the business was and then one more thing a delay in the discovery of the fire and then in uh, an inexplicable delay in the alarm system so the fire department got to the site about a half an hour after it started, uh, by which time it was virtually out of hand, just spreading too quickly, partly because of that wind and uh, um, convection currents that threw chunks of burning Chicago high in the air and then blew them toward the land in other parts where that caught fire. Now, as for Mrs. O'Leary, it probably started in her barn but we don't know why. Uh, it is very, very unlikely of the legend that she was milking a cow and the cow kicked off her lantern. It's true. She milked her cows very early in the morning and then in the late afternoon and by nine o'clock on Sunday night, she was and her family were in bed. How did she learn about the fire? And how did neighbors attempt to sure. assist her? Sure, sure. Well, One of the neighbors in this neighborhood was a man named Daniel Sullivan, sometimes called Peg Leg Sullivan because he had one leg. Uh, And in fact, there are some people that based on kind of contextual evidence think that he started it by accident by smoking his pipe. But in any case, he was the one who first saw the fire and he knocked on the O'Leary's door. He lived across the street and alerted them and they came out and they took a look and saw it uh, and neighbors helped a good deal. They, the, the O'Leary's lived in this basically a, a pine shanty, one of two on their small lot. They rented the front one out and in the back of the lot was this barn and neighbor, the only, they had no plumbing of any kind. Uh, there were a, a real, relatively new water system, though, in the city. And so when the, basically the neighbors formed a kind of bucket brigade uh, and tried to put it out, uh, but there was no hope. And then it was spreading very, very quickly, and then they had to worry about their own homes. Uh, one of the ironies of the fire is that in the neighborhood, one of the few houses that survived was the O'Leary house because it was south of the barn, and the wind was blowing largely north and east. I'm fascinated by fire departments from this time period. Yes. What was the size of the Chicago Fire Department? What kind of equipment were they using? What were the common firefighting techniques of the era? Well, Chicago had, it was too small, but Chicago had a, again, I don't want to overuse this phrase, but a a modern, up-to-date, state-of-the-art fire department, by which I mean its equipment was all steam-driven, not men pumping away. It had a telegraph alarm system through which uh, if a fire started anywhere in the city, there's something like 172 alarm boxes, uh, a signal could be sent in to a, a central telegraph office in the city hall, And then uh, the word would then go out to the relevant fire companies and a big fire would go out to all of them. And there were also bells that rang and the bells rang in a certain code that indicated where the fire was. And this is in addition to kind of old fashioned methods. There also was a lookout on top of every fire station and in the cupola of the central City Hall, which is called the courthouse, with a telescope looking out. 
So that was it. But there were only, the whole fire department had around 200 men in it. And this is for a city that's probably around 330,000 people. And again, that had fought a major fire that consumed four square blocks the night before, or not even the night before, still into the day of the Great Chicago Fire. And so was um, many men were injured. All of them were exhausted. They they had been up the entire previous night. And then the alarm rings again, and there they are. Uh, the fire department and various others have been calling for more equipment, better equipment, more men, and so on. But the politicians and taxpayers didn't want to do it because it would cost money. People don't like to pay for things that might happen. And obviously, in the long run, it would have been a lot cheaper to be more prepared, but this is hardly uncommon. And I might add, this is early in the era of what we might call professional firefighting. Chicago had only had a paid fire department starting in 1858, and that's in line with many other cities as well. Um, up to then, there were just local volunteer crews of different kind, but it had a virtually brand new water system put in four years before the fire, uh, had this alarm system, had steam equipment and everything else. But there were delays, right, related to the alarm system. Right. As I said, there was, there was at first, someone ran from where the O'Leary's were to sound the alarm and it just, they just did not hear it downtown. And then they, someone else came to the same place and they, were, they sent a signal again and it was not heard again. And basically, as I said, the fire was going for about half an hour before the fire department arrived. So what path did the fire take through Chicago? The O'Leary House is, first of all, I, for those of you who, listeners who don't know a lot about Chicago, Chicago is, was, is situated on Lake Michigan. So there's basically no east side of Chicago. It's just, it's, it, the lakefront is the eastern border of the city. And the Chicago River which at that point flowed into Lake Michigan, uh, had two branches, a north and a south branch, as well as a main branch. And that divided the city into its north side, south side, and west side. And the O'Leary House, uh, the shanty as I've called it, was about a mile and a half southwest of the downtown on the near west side. So with the wind blowing from the southwest, it blew it toward the downtown, toward the center of town, and then up to the north side of the city. Um, it wasn't a single fire, but many fires. Uh, as I said before, the updrafts created by the heat of the fire itself uh, threw chunks of burning Chicago into the air, and then the wind blew them ahead. So they would land in various places, and in several times, several instances, they would then ignite some other part of the city, and another fire would start. And these would, in some ways, go their own way, but also then join with others. So there's multiple different things. But as a kind of general rule, on Sunday night, it burned north and east, jumped the south branch of the Chicago River into the center of the city, which is very much where the center of the city is now, and then jumped the main branch of the river into the north side and kept going there. Then into Monday and Tuesday, it both went farther north and farther south. Some of it turned south and burned east of where it had burned during on Sunday night, and so the rest of it kept going farther north and west. So it wasn't finally out in the downtown area until late Sunday, Monday afternoon, and not out farther north until very early Tuesday morning. Chicago was only about a sixth of its current size then, 
Uh, so it burned all the way to the northern border of the city, uh, which was then at a place called Fullerton Avenue, which is about three, three, four miles north of the center of town. So what efforts were initially made by the Chicago Fire Department to stop the fire from spreading? And how long did it burn before officials realized it would pretty much be impossible to stop? The, chief, the fire chief, um, which was a man, who was a man named Robert Williams, said the, the, the key to fighting a fire is to get ahead of it. So what they tried to do was not only put out the things that were burning, but to outflank it, to get farther to its north and east, and sort of catch it as it was coming. But by the time they did that, and first of all, the fire would leap over their heads. So it would get, it was very hard to get in front of it. But secondly, by the time they would try to do this, it was, you know, we use this metaphor a lot, an inferno, but it was an inferno. It was, it, it was too hot. And with the wind blowing, and the intense heat, the, the, the wind would turn the hose into spray. They were ineffectual. The thing was just too big, too wide, too hot. I mean, it melted glass. And, and we're talking, you know, temperatures 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit or more. Uh, at certain points, a, a, a body of fire a half a mile wide. So it, it, it went where it wanted, basically. Uh, and then around 3.30 in the morning, an enormous chunk of burning Chicago flew through the air and landed in the roof of the pumping station of the new waterworks. The roof collapsed and the engine stopped pumping. So I don't think even if they had kept pumping, it would have done much good. But by then, oh, then there was just no water to fight the fire. Uh, so what's the tactic? The tactic is run. Uh, and fires were so common that at first people just saw it as a thing that happens and people like to go watch fires. I mean, we're talking there's no movies, no radio, no television. It's a form of urban entertainment. It's wonderfully exciting and a fairly commonplace thing. And then they come to realize this is spreading and spreading fast. And then people, particularly who work in downtown, go downtown to, as a precaution, get things that they have great value, papers or whatever, in their offices. And then as the fire gets closer, people who live in the direction in which it's moving pack up belongings, their children, their parents, their pets, and walk and then run uh, to safety or what they hope is safety, which is basically west above the fire and north and east beyond it, some to the lakefront, some to try to get beyond it, to open areas beyond the city. And we'll be back after a brief break. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. 
Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. Yeah, you write in your book that the fire was so rapid, so hot, so intense, that the wooden buildings in its path were going up in flames in literally the time it takes to light a piece of paper on fire, right? right? When you throw a piece of newspaper into a fireplace and you just see it suddenly go woof, and that's how people were describing what was happening to whole houses. They would dematerialize. It turned limestone, a lot of Chicago buildings made of that, to powder. Again, it, it curled streetcar tracks up in, into great curlicues. It was astonishing, just absolutely astonishing. And it went on for 30 hours. One of the things that was tried in the effort to stop the spread of the fire was to use explosives. Yes, there was a particularly one man, a, a, uh, a man named William Hildreth, who was a little bit gunpowder crazy. This is right before the invention of dynamite, or right, or, or right. Anyways, we're not talking about dynamite. We're talking about gunpowder here, and he suggested making a fire break by blowing up buildings in the fire's path. And the one fire break that I think that did work was an unintentional one. Uh, as I said, there was that Saturday night fire. So when it, the fire advanced toward that, that was also on the west side. When it got there, there was nothing else to burn. So that stopped it. Uh, it's very de- very debatable whether the gunpowder worked. We know the early attempts to do it, which are near where the city hall is, basically were a dud. And then Almost 24 hours later, the next afternoon, late the next afternoon, probably about 18 hours later, near the south southern edge of where the fire reached, Hildreth tried again uh, with this. He claims it stopped the fire. It It's hard to find definitive proof of that. The fire basically went where it wanted and, and burned when it ran out of fuel or the the wind stopped blowing it in a certain direction and so on. Also, very early Tuesday morning after a long summer and early fall of virtually no rain, it started to rain. And that probably helped put out the fire a bit. But the main thing, it, it basically burned itself out. And the city remained hot for a few days in the places where it burned most intensely. The, the fire didn't discriminate, did it? It destroyed slums, it destroyed houses in the most fashionable neighborhoods in the city. Well, uh, it, it destroyed some slums, not all, and yes, some. it didn't discriminate in that sense, and it certainly destroyed all the best commercial buildings in the city. The office buildings, the newspapers, the, the best hotels, the best restaurants most of which were built out of quote-unquote fireproof materials like brick or stone, but had a lot of decorative lumber on them, uh, cornices and the, and the like, signs and things. 
And again, once this fire was so hot that if, uh, you know, it, it, it would gut these buildings, even if there was a kind of frame around it still standing, the interior was destroyed. Uh, every building has wood in it, and it just got to that as well. So the O'Leary area was not exactly a slum, but where very poor people lived. In downtown, uh, there were slum areas that went up, uh, a lot of workers' houses, but also a number of mansions, as you say. So your book is filled with so many stories of escapes. Right, but and... this book this book tries to tell the big story, but it tries to tell what it was like. What It's a narrative history that tries to explain the fire as experienced by lots and lots of individuals in their own words where I could do it. One of the, those stories that stuck out for me was John Shorthall's attempt. Yes, John G. Shorthall. Uh, John G. Shorthall was basically in, in, in the title business, uh, real estate business, and a title company that records real estate transactions. And he had an office very near the courthouse. Uh, and he went to his business to see what he could save. And then when he saw that the city hall was on fire, he knew that it was the repository of basically all the city's records. And so the copies of various transactions that he had were all the more valuable. So he concentrated what few people, uh, employees he had there helping him out to evacuating those records and then he had the challenge of finding a wagon to put them in. In the story he told years later, a friend basically hired a wagon by pointing a gun at, at a, uh, a teamster. Uh, and these people were obviously in great demand that night. And so people in the office then loaded all these records and Shortall had them brought toward his home, which was south of the fire. And he also claimed in that very same night that uh, one of the things that was in the courthouse was a jail. And when they realized that the courthouse was doomed, they set free the less dangerous of the prisoners in the jail. They weren't going to let them burn to death and tried to accompany the more dangerous ones to someplace else. But he claims that, at, again, at the point of a gun, he, what can I say, hired uh, a, a bunch of these um, felons to help him get the stuff home, and that he finally did. And then he claimed that as soon as he did, he went back to help out other people. One of the things I couldn't talk about in this book, and this is talk about all the wonderful individual stories, is, you know, the fire is a major event in people's lives, but it's only one event. And Shortall had a remarkable later career. He was the leader in Chicago of, for the humane treatment of animals. So he was head of the Humane Society later in the 19th century, and is sort of a major figure in that world. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you, you describe these incredibly wild street scenes. People were hauling furniture, belongings, dragging them yes. behind them. It's a tough thing. Imagine you try to put yourself in their place. The life as you know it is over now. The house you lived in, whatever else, is gone. It's doomed. And what do you do? What, you know, obviously you try to take your children and or your elderly parents, but what else do you take? You know, what matters? Is it because, you know, things of, of either economic or sentimental value? But for some people, if you're a poor person, everything you own is in that building and you, whatever it is. And so there are stories of people carrying mattresses cause, on their heads because this is the most valuable thing they own. And then if you can't do that, you there are all these stories that to me seemed improbable, but then there are just too many for not to be true. People bury things. They dig holes and they bury stoves. They bury pianos. It, it's just 
astonishing and, and that they have the time to do this thing. And then they, they run. Man, this is not a few people. 90,000 people, by a conservative count, lost their homes overnight in a city of 330 or so thousand. That's more than a quarter of the population in one night. And that population is equivalent to the size of Cleveland, which then was the 15th biggest city in the United States. I mean, this is, and probably more than that, lost their jobs or their place of employment. Would you tell us about the courthouse, its significance to the city, and its ultimate fate? Sure, sure. Well, the courthouse is in, for anybody who knows Chicago, is in the same, was in the same place where the city hall and Cook County building are today, in the heart of the downtown. Uh, it was much smaller, so it didn't take up the whole block as it does now, but was a, a smaller building that was surrounded by a park of sorts. And it had originally, it was about the third or fourth city hall. And it originally had been built in 1853. And then recently two new wings on the east and west side and a cupola had been put on it. But it was a, a poorly built building. But that, what's less relevant is that it basically, at that time, held all the offices and all the records of the city of Chicago and the county of Cook in which Chicago sits. So it, it is absolutely the major center. And then, and that's also on, from the lookout on the cupola is where the fire department lookout is watching. And in that building is also where the telegraph office. And so, um, they're watching the fire, they spot it, and then the fire is coming right at them. And finally, they abandon the building. Also, the mayor of the city, once he realizes it's on fire, comes to the courthouse and starts telegraphing to other places for help, tries to ad administer directions as best he can, and then he runs for his life, and it takes him basically f four hours or more to get home which is based less than a mile away through this, again, burning hell of a city. And uh, his home was outside where the fire burned, but uh, just a remarkable thing. And then also in the center of this courthouse was this 11,000-pound bell, which was set on automatic to ring the uh, fire alarm. And it just was gonging away and gonging away from around 9.30 that night till early in the morning. And then the fire hits the building. And around 1.30, the central tower just collapses and the bell plummets to the ground and the, the earth shakes from the weight of the thing. And the silence is some, in some ways worse than all the clanging. It's quite a dramatic scene. Yeah, very much so. You, you write that it was so difficult for people who experienced this fire to describe it. It was so surreal, almost unreal. And period writers turned to metaphors, right? Well, we always turn to them, and, and yes, but we, we can only use the language we have, you know? Uh, and so... And here's the thing, you know, it's a kind of paradox. They, they say this was indescribable. There's no way to put it into words. And then they go on for pages. <laughs> and, and I mean, it's just a natural thing. It, it, it's a form of way we, what can I say, domesticate things imaginatively. If we can try to describe it and explain it, it's an attempt to assert control over it. So they do it by, since they can't describe it in itself, they try to describe it in terms of other things, and that's where the metaphors come up. What's interesting is the number of water metaphors. They talk about it as a, as a waterfall of fire, as a, as a torrent of fire, uh, because it just seems to flow. 
Um, you know, it, it moves like a wave, but they also talk about it. And this, what's their framework? The Civil War. They talk about it. it it's like we're back on a battlefield. And they talk about the fire as the enemy, as this advancing enemy. And then what's another metaphor they have? It's of hell. It's the, the, it's the fire fiend. They say this must be what the, you know, this, this matches the imaginative vision of the day of judgment. Um, and so they talk in these kind of apocalyptic terms about the whole thing. Uh, and not only is it, among the other things, is that it's just so big that it, it, it is, in the root sense of the term, incomprehensible. There's no way to see it all. You know, it is bigger than your ability to see it. And it's just, I mean, overwhelming doesn't even begin to describe it. There's no way to get perspective on it. Uh, it's just daunts the imagination and daunts the senses. And then on top of all that, it's hot. Um, you know, uh, people run to the lake and they do things like, take their cloak, they either wade into the lake or they take whatever cloth they have and dip it into the lake and uh, and put it over there wherever they have bare skin because they're just, it just is, is, is so intolerable, the, the intensity of this heat. And again, with the wind blowing toward them. So there just seems to be no relief. Yeah, the, the fire for at least a short time, you mentioned in your book, created an equality of sorts. Everyone was equally miserable. <laughs> well, well, nobody, or so we're told, and so is true. That is to say, if you're running from a fire, it doesn't care who you are. And, you know, and there are talk. There are talks about a community of suffering and an instant democracy. Having said that, the fire is an illustration, and even the recovery is an illustration of one of the truths that we see also in things like the almost any disaster, and we see things in things like the pandemic that the poor suffer worse. And why do I say that? The, the wealthy had many advantages. They had, were much more likely to have wagons or, or carts or carriages to take them away, servants to help them, wealthy friends outside the fire district to go, uh, credit, uh, money in the in banks somewhere uh, uh, in various ways. They had more to lose in many cases, but they also were far more likely to have insurance and insurance with a good company. And this is not to say that a lot of wealthy people didn't get very badly hurt by the fire. But if you're a poor person, everything you have is in your home. And if that's destroyed, you've lost basically everything. And you've got, it's much less likely that you've got at what can I call it, an informal social safety net to take you in with where, where there is there is space to spare or money to spare and the like. And you obviously don't have servants. And the difference between rich and poor is very, very large in that sense. But yes, the fire, uh, it, 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 you know, there are basically clusters of refugees in places and people who would normally not cross paths with each other in quote-unquote regular life. So were there any buildings that surprisingly escaped the fire that, that shouldn't well, the, have? The, yeah, the key, the key word is surprisingly. There were some buildings that escaped the fire because it just missed them. But there are very, very few buildings that were directly in the fire's path that were not destroyed. In the whole downtown area, there was one that was almost finished called the Nixon Block. And it was, quote unquote, fireproof, but so were a number of other buildings that burned. 
So it is as likely as not that it's sort of luck. And then there was uh, a few houses on the north side, which was lost almost all its housing. I mean, in the path in the path of the fire, there was of all things a very wealthy person's house, the so-called Malin Ogden Mansion, where Ogden was not home at the time. But the story is that servants took carpets, put them on the outside of the house, and soaked them down, and that that helped save the house. And no doubt it helped because it helped the fire from getting started. But there were plenty of other people who did things like that, and they lost their houses. And a Chicago policeman who lived a mile or two farther north, a man named Richard Bellinger, did something similar, and his house was spared. There are stories that other houses in his neighborhood were also spared. But again, I think it's as much good fortune as anything else. Interestingly, uh, as I said already, the um, pumping station for the waterworks the, was not spared. The roof fell in and the machinery stopped working. But across the street is one of Chicago's landmarks, if anyone who comes to Chicago knows, the Gothic uh, yellow sandstone, the yellow limestone water tower. And it was spared. And as much as it, it, more than anything else, any official thing, that is sort of a monument to the fire and to Chicago's resilience. Uh, it doesn't have any function. It even it, it didn't have much of a function even by the time of the fire because they didn't need the standpipe in it anymore. They had strong enough pumps, but it stands as a symbol of Chicago's indomitability. We, what we haven't gotten to here in all this discussion is the rebuilding of Chicago, which in many ways is as remarkable a story. Here, a third of the city is burned, the entire commercial center, and basically within two years, it is built back up, and it never stops growing in all of this time. And by 1890, it is the second biggest city in the United States. And the reason for that is the same things that caused Chicago to be built in the first place. All those forces I talked about, west, westward expansion, immigration, industrialization, communication and transportation revolutions, and the need for the world, for this, this kind of place in this location at the western edge of the Great Lakes between the manufacturing east and the... Uh, the natural resources and the farm resources of the West um, was still there. And Chicago just kept right on growing and it, it didn't stop. It, it basically, it didn't slow. It didn't, the only time it ever got less was during the depression and it didn't reach its peak in growth until around 1950. And it's been in an irregular decline since then. What did the fire ultimately cost in both life and property? Well, in property, it was very expensive. In life, miraculously little. In property, the estimates are basically a third of the value of the city, which at that point was in 1871 dollars, around $200 million and a conservative equivalent would you would reach by multiplying it by at least 20 and it lost a great deal but only as far as we can tell and it's hard to know for sure since a lot of bodies were probably incinerated quote unquote only about 300 people were killed and no firemen and this is probably because they people saw it coming and were able to run uh, 33 years later, in uh, one of the worst single building fires in history, in, in certainly in Chicago history, and there's a fire at a holiday matinee in a single theater in Chicago called the Iroquois Theater in 1903, and 600 people died in that one fire. Um, and of course, we know that 3,000 people or so died in the World Trade Center. And the other little known fact is that on the exact same night of the Great Chicago Fire, there was a fire in the 
lumber town of Peshtigo, Wisconsin and surrounding area. Peshtigo is about 250 miles north of Chicago near Green Bay. And the estimates are unclear. It's somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500. But that is the, I think many people talk about that as the largest single loss of life of any fire. But we don't hear about it much. Chicago was already in the limelight. Chicago was on the telegraph nexus. Uh, Chicago was the story of the 19th century. So it got so much attention and Peshtigo virtually lost uh, to larger attention. One of the, the really uplifting things about the aftermath of the fire was the outpouring of support. Yes. There's no safety net at that time, anything close to what there is now. But as I mentioned, as the city was burning, word got out through the telegraph throughout the rest of the country and then across to Europe. The successful completion of the transatlantic cables only five years before the fire. And the fire is what we might call the first instantaneous news event, something we're very used to, that people far away know about it in virtually in real time, sometimes better than the people who are right there because they're dealing with a crisis. So Chicago started burning on Sunday night and burned into early Tuesday morning. It's headline news in Monday morning's New York papers. And as the telegraph word goes out, people all over the country and then all over the world start pledging, have meetings in places like Faneuil Hall in Boston, pledging money, sending supplies and food to Chicago on trains, some of which arrive again while Chicago is still burning. And that totals in all about the equivalent in goods and money to about at least $10 million at the time. And again, you multiply that by at least 20 to get it in at least a low ballpark figure for now. And uh, that's very important in helping feed Chicagoans and clothe Chicagoans in the very grim days right after the fire when so many people are homeless. Yeah. Not only do you have the, the obvious problem of, of housing, of, of food for 90,000 displaced Chicago residents, but there's also this underlying fear of crime by many in Chicago, uh, of, of looting. Yes, well, one, one byproduct that's timeless of, of disasters is rumors, fear and paranoia. And so... There's tremendous fears of looting or that criminal gangs are coming to Chicago to all their, all these safes now lying on the ground and by these burned buildings, they're going to come and sack the city. And then there are even rumors that there are arsonists on the loose. And then even rumors that not only arsonists on the loose, but there are vigilante citizens who catch these arsonists and are hanging them from lampposts. And I think there was some looting, there was some rowdy behavior, but nowhere in proportion to the amount of rumor. And this is also a big news story. I talked about it's, it's not only a first instantaneous news event, this is a period when the modern mass communications are coming into their own because of the recent invention of the steam press, cheap pulp paper, railroads to distribute them and so on. And the national news weeklies, illustrated news weeklies like Harper's Weekly are now coming into the fore. And they, they, they have press runs now are twice or three times the size of the normal run because the fire is such, if you excuse the expression, hot story. Um, <laughs> and, and they report on the fire, but then they report on the rumors as well. It has been said that that priests killed seven men trying to rob a, a monastery, you know, just crazy stuff. Um, and those of us, um, not all of us who lived through the pandemic know the nature of these stories and that sometimes the difficulty of sorting out the truth from the rumor. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the mayor of Chicago, who was 
kind of an unassuming guy at the time, right? Right. He had, yes, he's an, at this point fairly old. He's in his mid sixties. He's never been a politician. He's a kind of candidate of a self-called reform group, and he's his appeal is he's not a politician, but he's also not. A, he's basically a, a a career transportation engineer, and there he is, and so he gets the, basically the city's wealthy elite talk him into getting General Philip Sheridan to lead an impromptu uh, volunteer force to protect the city. It's completely illegal. It's, it's martial law in a civilian place. Uh, and that goes very bad. And then they also convince him to give all this money and the supplies that have been given to the people of Chicago to basically their organization, a small charity that they control so they can direct the, the distribution of the gifts uh, in line with their vision of the way Chicago should be. So the fire entered popular culture pretty quickly, right? Yes. It, it, yes, and it changes in the way it does, it, it, as does the story of Mrs. O'Leary. You know, it, it goes from this very quickly, uh, again, thanks to the resilience of Chicago because of both its internal resources, its people, and the need of the rest of the world for it, which brings money and more people there, uh, it revives. So it becomes a kind of second creation myth, or a, in some ways a first creation myth, that Chicago is is created out of the fire, uh, forged in the fire. Uh, the, the, the great lesson of its destruction is that it's indestructible. Nothing can stop Chicago. And the fire becomes something to brag about. And it becomes a star in one of the in, in, in the city, one of the four stars in the city flag, the first of the four stars. The flag doesn't exist till early in the 20th century. Um, and and thing to brag about. And Mrs. O'Leary goes from this dangerous, dirty, Catholic, immigrant Irish woman who is this great threat among us at least in the eye, again, of these, uh, this Yankee elite, uh, to a kind of almost comic figure of folklore, you know, and she and her clumsy cow. And it's still just as patronizing and condescending as it ever was. But, but uh, uh, in some ways, it's the fire that reveals the greatness of Chicago and forges it. So it becomes this kind of positive uh, mythology uh, out of the story of destruction. The last chapter of the book is called Celebrating Destruction. Chicago is one of the few places that celebrates its destruction. Right. So Mrs. O'Leary, as you've said, was widely vilified. Yes. Uh, blamed for starting a fire that there was no evidence she had anything to do with. Right. Uh, did, did some in Chicago want to see her punished in some way for her alleged role? What, what ultimately became of her? Well, that, first of all, she was vilified, but there were no arrests or anything like that. And remember, uh, while she still had her house, she lost her four cows a horse, her wagon, uh, and she had no insurance of any kind, and meanwhile was being vilified. And she was illiterate. She had no particular way to defend herself. A, another man got her and her husband and this man, Daniel Sullivan, to sign with an ex-affidavit saying that they were innocent, uh, and that was published in the papers. And she was brought to the official inquiry or appeared at the official inquiry in late November and early December. And she basically said, I was in bed. I had nothing to do with it. I, I was badly hurt by the fire as well. Um, and uh, while the, the English language newspapers still continue to make fun of her and vilify her, 
they never accuse her of a crime. It's it's still an accident as far as they're concerned in many ways that makes it better because it makes it not dangerous. Uh, you know, it's not like someone's planning to destroy Chicago. But even right then, the fire department says in not so many words, clears her by saying, we don't know how this fire started. But uh, she still becomes this figure of ridicule and, and derision. And on fire anniversaries through most of the rest of her life, uh, newspapers send a reporter to talk to her. She knows they're only going to, there's no way to win in that. Uh, she refuses to talk to them and they make fun of her anyway. And she died in 1895, um, 24 years after the fire, her husband the year before. Um, and, uh, Basically, this, I, I call her in the book, the fire's most enduring victim. And I think that's the case, uh, but tried to live out the rest of her life as quietly as possible. Yeah. The idea that she carried a lantern into the barn and left it lit, her, her neighbors later came to her defense and said she did not do that. Yeah, I mean, again, I, it, it just turns into an absurd story. I mean, yeah, we, we're, we're sort of trying to refute something that was very unlikely to have happened. And again, in cities, fires happen. They just happen. And sometimes we can trace them and sometimes we can't. They're, or we can say they're overdetermined. They're inevitable. So the question becomes, what do you do about that? And so you try to reduce that inevitability with things that we have now about all kinds of things about fire code and uh, how buildings have to be built and how they have to be wired and how machines work. And then we also build in protective systems uh, um, in case in spite of all our precautions, something happens. That is to say, we make sure that exits are marked and work well. We have sprinkler systems and fire hoses in buildings. We have fire drills in schools and in uh, large buildings. You know, we try to stay prepared, but the great truth is the only fire that isn't dangerous is a fire that never starts. <laughs> and uh, you can't prevent them all, uh, but between one thing and another. But what you can try to do is make sure that the whole city doesn't burn down if it does happen. Right, right. And every fire is a new lesson. That, that's true, yeah. So what now sits at the site of the O'Leary house? Well, the house sat there for a while, and then it was replaced by a brick house that was there for a much longer while from the 1880s to the 1950s. And then the city of Chicago deliberately burned the block down in a kind of fire training exercise and urban renewal exercise. And in one of the few displays of civic wit by the city of Chicago, what's on the site of the O'Leary house now and a lot of land next to it is the place where they train firefighters. <laughs> the, 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 the Quinn Fire Training Academy, which has a little museum in it and it has a little place in it that's surrounded with uh, kind of plush um, rope and then a plaque on the floor that says, here the great Chicago fire began. Um, I'm not sure if that's absolutely accurate, but it's pretty close. Well, this has been marvelous. Um, so if people want to connect with you, is there a way that you would suggest that they do so? Well, my uh, email address is on the Northwestern University website. And, and you've written a multitude of Chicago history books. A multitude, or at least five, <laughs> <laughs> and do and other projects. Uh, I do a lot of um, what can I call it? humanities computing. I I also uh, 
was the curator of a major online exhibition on the fire and the, for the History Museum in collaboration with the uh, information technologies people at Northwestern University. And uh, I do a lot of work of that kind as well. That's great. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Well, thank you. And uh, it's uh, very gratifying to be asked, and I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Again, my guest has been Professor Carl Smith. His book is called Chicago's Great Fire, The Destruction and Resurrection of an Iconic American City. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.